What is the name of God the Holy Spirit? And don't tell me, oh, well, it's God the Holy Spirit. That's not a name. That's a title. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The nameless God. We're going to be looking at the subject of the nameless God. And uh, looking at the nameless God, we're going to be examining what God has revealed about himself, particularly about his name, and what that tells us when we don't have a name. And uh, our first verse is in Proverbs chapter 30, where the wise man asks a question relating to God and his name. And it says here in verse 4, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if thou canst tell? Very important question here that's really worth pondering. This question relates to a very important kind of knowledge. It's the true knowledge of God. And the key here we want to keep in mind is it's not just knowing what God's name is in order to be able to pronounce it or say it, but it's really knowing God by name. Meaning you have an, a true living relationship and connection with the creator God. And it says here, what is his name and what is his son's name, which immediately tells us this is talking about a father and a, a son, but it's not enough to know them as father and son, these are titles. There are many fathers here in this room. There are many sons here today. But what is his name and what is his son's name? Very specific knowledge and understanding. A personal knowledge of God is what is really expressed in this verse. And this is the question I want to put to you today as well, that the wise man puts. Do you know them by name? Because you see, in the Hebrew, to know someone by name is not just to know what their name is, or to know how to say it. But in Hebrew, to know someone by name is to actually know them intimately and have a connection and a relationship with them. And we will see that as well as we go along. So this personal intimate level is how God wants us to know him. To know that all this work of creation, all this work of making, creating, and sustaining the world is by the Father and the Son. And it's not just enough to know that, but personally, do you know them by name. And we're going to look at the nameless God today in this context. And this is confirmed by Jesus that this is not just a mere acquaintance, but this is a living and vibrant relationship with the Father and with the Son. It's actually the basis of eternal life because in John 17 and verse 3, this is what we are told. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Again, here, Jesus is emphasizing and repeating the exact same thought. Eternal life, brothers and sisters, is to know the Father and the Son, not just to know about them, not just to understand the truth about them, but actually to know them personally and individually. That's what the question is talking about. Do you know them by name? The Father has a name. The Son has a name. We're going to look at that a little bit today. And we're going to look at what that actually means. Because sometimes people get caught up in thinking that knowing God's name is all about knowing how to pronounce it correctly or properly. Or maybe even in Hebrew. But the emphasis in the scripture is not about that. It's actually knowing the owner of the name. And you have a personal acquaintance with him. That's really what it's talking about as we shall see. Now this knowledge which is eternal life. I want to emphasize this here. Eternal life is to know how many individuals according to Jesus. Two, right? The Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, and the Son. That's it, right? No one else. Now we don't need to add to what Jesus said because he is the highest authority on this topic. He is telling us what eternal life is about. He came to give eternal life. In other words, he came to give a correct and accurate knowledge and understanding, a revelation of who God really is and who he, his son, really is. And in knowing them is eternal life. Two, not three, I should add, because there is a popular idea today that says that God is more than one. God is actually three. And to know God means you need to know all three. 
According to Jesus, eternal life is to know only the Father and the Son. It's dangerous to add to what Jesus says. Eternal life is to know the Father and the Son intimately. Now notice how this is actually connected with knowing God's name. Just to show you that knowing the name is about having this personal connection and relation. In John chapter 17, a little later in verse 6, notice how Jesus connects that knowledge with the name. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy words. So Jesus revealed and manifested his father's name. In other words, he came to declare his character, his nature, what he is really like. That's what manifesting the name is. Because you don't find Jesus trying to teach his disciples how to pronounce God's name. And yet he says, I have manifested thy name. What it means is he came to reveal and show the true character and nature of God, what he is really like. That's what revealing or manifesting the name is. And so to know God by name is to know him, to know his character and who he is and have a relationship with the owner of the name. I'm saying this because, like I said, there are a number of times where people think that knowing God's name is all about pronouncing it accurately and properly in Hebrew. Now, if you want to do that, okay, no problem. But sometimes people take that to an extreme. This is not what Jesus was concerned with. Revealing and knowing God's name is knowing the character and having a relationship with the Father and with the Son. In other words, what Jesus' concern was that we might know what is God really like? How can we be restored to a loving trusting relationship with him and that's what he meant when he says he came to manifest or to reveal his name that's what it's all about the chief attribute in this revelation about god in revealing his name is actually summed up by the apostle john in his letter in first john chapter 4 and verse 8 it says he that loveth not knoweth not god for god is love where did john learn that from jesus he was one of the disciples. He had heard and understood what Jesus meant when he manifested God's name. He came to understand that this God, the Father of Jesus Christ, is a God of love. He is summarized in his character and his nature as being love. John knew the Father. He knew his character. That's the point of understanding the name. And so this is why we want to look at that a little bit closer today. And uh, consequently, of course... When you know that God is love and you know the love of God, it influences and impacts our love response back to God. Because love awakens love. The Bible actually says we love him because he first loved us. So our perception of God's love will influence how we react and how we respond with love back to God. Do you really know his name? That's the question. Because God's love today has been obscured through a number of ways and means. And we're going to look at some examples of that. But God's love, brothers and sisters, was manifested in that he gave his only begotten son. That's the revelation of God's love. So obscuring that understanding will immediately obscure the revelation of God's love. To say that the son was not really the son or was only a metaphor, was only make-believe, is really to influence God's love in the same way. If he gave a metaphorical son, then God's love is only metaphorical. You see the connection? Jesus came to reveal the name of God, the character of God. And that's based on the very nature and chief attribute of what he is like. And that's his love. And his love is revealed in giving his only begotten son so you may know about god but you may not actually love god or know him personally you realize that you might have information in your head about who god is have accurate truthful information but it doesn't necessarily mean you know him personally and individually and have a relationship with him and that's what really matters don't mistake knowing information about god to knowing God personally. And this is what John 17, 3 is really all about. So this aspect of God being love and the fact that he 
manifested his love towards us in giving his only begotten son. Uh, sadly, this point is actually used by some people to promote the idea that God is a trinity and that the father and son relationship is not real, but only a metaphor. You might have heard this argument before, but a very popular and common argument that's based on God's nature of love actually goes something like this. Now, I have a video clip here. Let's, let's hope this works. And uh, this is a video clip from from Doug Batchelor, you might know him. Uh, the point here is what he's saying, not him personally. But the argument that he's expressing and sharing is a common one that a lot of people repeat. I wanna uh, share it with you because I want to deal with it and see what we can learn from that. Let's uh, get this thing going here and see how it works. Now, one of the, for me, I, this is I think a slam dunk truth. The idea that Jesus was created means that at some point a person believes that uh, God the Father, perhaps God the Father with the Spirit, but these people also don't believe the Spirit is God, did not exist, which would mean that at some point way back that God the Father existed all by himself and there was no other intelligent being. Now, the Bible tells us that the supreme definition of God is God is love. By its very nature, love must be expressed in order to be love. So for you to say that there was a time when God existed and Jesus did not exist, God could not be love unless it was expressed. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, something we'll talk about another uh, question, um, has always existed. And that's why God is love. There's always been this perfect love between the members, the persons of the Trinity. Okay, did you catch that? You've heard the argument before? If God is love, that means all three have to exist at the same time. You can't have the Father before the Son because that would mean God is not love. Because, as he said, love must be expressed in order to be love. Or, as he also said, God could not be love unless it was expressed. The problem here is very simple. It's confusing the expression of love with the existence of love itself. And I want to show you how this argument actually ends up destroying God's love completely because it means that God's very character and nature of love is dependent on someone else outside of himself existing and if that someone else was not there it means God is not really love you see the problem I want to illustrate it for you this way this is a a poisonous creature that lives in Australia. This is a brown snake. This brown snake is poisonous. That's, that's his nature. When he bites, he produces venom and poison and injects his, uh, his victims. Now here's the question. If I was to tell you the poison of the snake must be expressed in order for it to be poison, what would you think of that? You see, this is a problem that happens from time to time in Australia. Uh, this uh, snake actually happened to kill someone. Here is the article about it. Australian killed after a deadly brown snake bite. So it's a serious thing to get bitten by one of those things. But here is the question. Did the snake become poisonous only after it bit the man? Look, if you think this way, we'll think there's something wrong with you, okay? Nobody thinks this way. So just because the, the snake didn't have an opportunity to express the poison and manifest it doesn't mean it wasn't a poisonous snake before. God's love does not become love only after it's expressed. But because God is already love, he can express his love. So let's not confuse God's expression of love with the existence of the very nature of his character of love. You see the point? And so arguments like that end up destroying the very fact that God is love when you say God well God's love is dependent on another two being there in existence and it takes all three and that's why God's love we well, just destroyed God's love a good illustration of that is when God created Adam and when God created Adam he created him alone first you remember that and the Bible says he created Adam in God's image so Adam would have been a loving being or did Adam only begin to be a loving being after he met Eve. What do you think about that? Adam was alone and he was a loving being in reflection to God. 
And when God created Eve, now Adam could express that love which was part of his nature on someone or with someone else. He didn't become love. He now could express that love. And so it's not actually an argument against the truth about God that holds water. It actually ends up destroying God's love. God the Father is love. And when he had his son, his son was an expression of that love. And when he decided to give us his son, that was a further expression of his love to us. Very clear and very easy to understand. Let's look how this was the case with Moses. When God revealed his name to Moses, again, we see that God's revelation of his name has to do with his character. In Exodus 34, verse 5 to 7, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. So God revealing his name or proclaiming his name to Moses was him revealing his character, right? This is what God's name is all about. So some, uh, you know, it's important not to get caught up with some of these issues that actually detract from the point when the Bible talks about revealing God's name. When God wants us to know his name, he's not just concerned with trying to pronounce his name in a particular language correctly. He wants us to know the true character and nature that makes up the owner of that name. This is the God that we serve. Now, interestingly enough, as it says here, you know, God's name is not dependent on anyone outside of himself. God's character and who he is is not based on the existence of anyone else besides him. Otherwise, it would not be really him. For example, in this verse, we read that God, part of God's name and character is that he is a forgiving God. Isn't that right? He forgives iniquity. So here's the question. Does that mean that iniquity had to exist as long as God existed in order to prove that he is forgiving? You, you see the, the, the point? That this is the reasoning that was used in the argument we saw in the clip earlier, right? If God, is for, if God is love, then there had to be someone else there all along, all three together in order for him to be love. So if God is forgiving by the same reasoning, therefore sin had to exist all the way from the beginning in order for God to be forgiving. That's total nonsense. When sin did come into the universe, God actually now could manifest the forgiving part of his nature, the mercy and the grace. It didn't all of a sudden materialize then and there, but it was part of his very nature. But now it could be expressed. So let's not confuse the expression with the existence of the character itself. And so... As God here revealed his name to Moses, his desire was for Moses and his people to know him, to know, to know who he is. Now I want us to think of the inverse of that as well. An unrevealed name signifies the very opposite here. A revealed name is to reveal a true identity and a character that exists. An unrevealed name signifies the very opposite. I want us to keep that in mind because God is not an anonymous being. God does not want to think of him as Mr. Anonymous up in the sky. Right? God wants us to know him by name, to know his character, so he revealed his name. And so when we have the opposite, when we have an unrevealed name, we have no identity and no character. I want us to keep that in mind as we go along because the title of our study this morning is The Nameless God. There is a God that exists who is nameless, and it has caused all kinds of problems for people who believe that about God. And we'll see that as we go along. That's why I want us to keep in mind what this component of a revealed name versus an unrevealed name is all about. So, when it talks here in Exodus, uh, when it says here, the Lord descended in the cloud, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. If you understand the Hebrew, or if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you'll find that the word Lord there in capital letters actually comes from the original Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh. Or the English form of that is 
Jehovah. And so every time in the Old Testament where you see Lord in capital letters, it actually comes from the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. In one place where, it is, where it's actually translated uh, a bit more properly or clearly is Psalm 83 and verse 18. It says that men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. That name Jehovah is actually very common in the Old Testament. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. But most of the time it's translated as Lord in our King James Bible in capital letters. So when it talks here about this being, this God whose name is Jehovah, it refers to him as the Most High over all the earth. Here's a question I want you to think about. How many Most Highs can there be? Only one. The idea you get from this verse is there is one. You know, he is the most high. In other words, there is no one higher than him. And there was no one as high as him. He is the very top. He is the most high. His name is Jehovah. Who is that talking about? This is, of course, talking about God the Father. Now, we know that from a number of verses which we'll look at. But if you remember, Satan's desire recorded in Isaiah 14 and verse 13, 14 was, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Even Satan knew who the most high was. Satan wanted to be like Jehovah. He wanted to be like the Most High. Now, Satan knows very well who that is. I want to look at this story in the New Testament so we can understand from the Bible, who is this Most High whose name alone is Jehovah? In this story in Luke chapter 8, Jesus encountered some demon-possessed people, reading from verse 27. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high, I beseech thee, torment me not. So the devils who were possessing this poor man, they knew who Jesus was. He was the Son of God, most high. So even the devil knew the position of Christ and also who the Most High is. We know from that that the Most High must be the Father of Jesus. In other words, this is God the Father we're talking about. Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free comprehensive and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansour.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansour.com. See you there. God the Father is the Most High, whose name alone is Jehovah. So that's his name in Hebrew, if you want to know what his name is. But the meaning and intention behind the name is to know that the owner of that name has this character of love, compassion, and mercy, and wants you to know him personally and individually. That's what revealing the name is all about. There is a name revealed because there is someone who owns that name. A real and living person who wants a relationship with you and me. So Christ was the son of the Most High. And so Jehovah is the proper name of God the Father. The English form of it in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And I want us to keep this point in mind. Because the wise man said, what is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell. So we found out what his name is at least the pronunciation of it, we found out what that means. That's his character, what his nature is about. That's who Jehovah is. Well, what about the son? Because it says, what is his son's name? Well, if I was to ask you today, what is the son's name? I'm going to get a, a very common answer, but I'm going to get a variety of answers because there are a number of names revealed in the scriptures. But I want us to think about something for a minute. What did Satan 
desire. Who did he want to be like? He says, I will be like the Most High. We found out that the Most High was who? God the Father, whose name is Jehovah. Now here's the question. Why did Satan even think that such a thing was possible? Right? Think about that. Why did he even think that being like the Most High was even a possibility? Because the answer is very simple. Because there was one who was like the Most High. And that gave Satan the idea and desire to be like that. And that one who was like the Most High was none other than the Son of God himself. Now why am I saying that? It's because the scripture says that about Christ. Notice what it says in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, that's the Father's glory. And the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is the express image of the Father, his own, all the brightness of his majesty and glory. In other words, the very nature and character of the Son of God was just like his father's. The very authority of the Father was invested in the Son. And so the Son carried and reflected the Father's nature and the Father's character. And Satan saw that, and he saw some of the privileges of that, and he desired to also be like the Most High. But notice how in Isaiah it actually tells us that this glory that the Son shared was actually only belonging to the son because god says in isaiah 42 and verse 8 i am the lord that is my name and my glory will i not give to another neither my praise to graven images only the son is the brightness of the father's glory the father does not give that glory to any other especially any other false claimant to being god that's exactly what satan Desired. You see the picture here a little bit clearer, hopefully. So now you understand that Satan had a real problem in heaven with the Son of God. Because he desired and aspired to be in that position. When he was a created being. Whereas the Son of God was the begotten of the Father. And that's the reason why the Son shared the Father's glory and was in all the brightness of his majesty and glory he was the express image of his person satan desired what jesus or what christ naturally have had now i'm saying jesus here and i i, I should uh, correct myself because jesus is the name of the son of god on earth we're going to look at something relating to that in a minute and explain what i mean but notice how else christ is described even before he came to earth. Philippians 2.6 Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The position of Christ as the Son of God was in the form of God and made him equal to God. In other words, he possessed the very same God nature of his Father. Pretty simple, right? Kind of like uh, you and your children. Now, I think uh, if I was to ask you a question here today, how many people have children in, the, in this room today? If you have children. Okay, that's most people, I suspected. And if I were to ask, if you are a child to your parents, all hands would go up. Do you have the nature of your parents? Or do you have some lesser quality human nature? You have the nature of your parents. Where'd you get it from? You inherited from your father and mother. We don't need to wait for you to talk like a human and act like a human before we classify you as a human. As soon as you're born, we know it's a human being straight away. As a matter of fact, we know that before the child is born. Wow. Well, how, how did we become so clever? Well, because God instilled this rule in creation that everything reproduces after its kind, right? So the little cat is going to have baby kittens and the dog will have dogs and the humans will have baby humans. Not rocket science, right? Not hard to understand. We see that all around us. So when God says he has a son, his son will be what? After his kind, in his own image, he will have the same God nature of his father. Simple enough to understand, right? There is your greatest evidence for the divinity of Christ. That's why the Bible talks about him here as being in the form of God 
and being equal with God. The basis for that is because he is God's son. So when you destroy the sonship, you're really destroying everything that makes him who he is. You see the point? Very significant. That's why in John also talks about the very same thing. John 1.1. 1, 1. This verse, a lot of people misunderstand this verse, but here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. People say, see, this is talking about Christ. Christ was God. There is the Trinity right there, brother. Well, hold on, hold on. Not so fast, okay? Just slow down a little bit. Verse is not talking about the Trinity. The verse is talking about the Father and the Son. And it says that in the beginning was the Word or was the Son. Now here's the question. When it talks about the beginning there, is it really talking about a beginning or no beginning? I'll, I'll, I'll quote a similar verse in another part of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You remember that? There is a specific point there or is that no beginning? There is a specific point where God created. In like manner, here it says, in the beginning was something or was someone. Who was the someone that's referred to here? It's the son. And the son was with God, with his father. And the son was God. In other words, he possessed the very same nature of his father. This is talking about the divinity of Christ. It's not talking about the Trinity. And there is no one else, by the way, who possesses that same nature of the father because he only had one only begotten son. Isn't that right? There is no one else. And this is what the verse actually means. When you look at it in different translations, you find that it's talking about the nature that the word possessed was just like the nature of God who he was with. In other words, brothers and sisters, what John is talking about here, he's talking about the sonship of Christ, which was in the beginning before anything was created. He's not saying it had no beginning. He's actually saying in the beginning. I had a meeting one time with some pastors and we quoted this verse and we said, you know, it says here, in the beginning was the word. It's talking about the son. And you know what answer we were told? We were told, well, this is a beginning without a beginning. Really, I'm, 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 I'm serious. And so we thought, well, that, that's a very strange way to read the Bible. How would that work in Genesis 1.1 if we were to use the same reasoning? In the beginning, God created. Well, that's a beginning without a beginning as well, if we were to be consistent. This is the dilemma we fall into when we try and defend non-biblical ideas. We end up having to twist scripture and present arguments that are totally false to try and bolster up these ideas. The other point here I want to mention is the, the son is referred to as the word here. The word of God. And this word, the idea that's portrayed here, I want us to think about it. When you speak, your words are an expression of what? Your thoughts, right? Well, they should be anyway. You're supposed to think and then speak. I know some of us sometimes we talk before we think. Not the ideal way to do it, right? Ideally, your words, my words are expressing my thoughts. So what's the source? The thought. And the word is the expression of that thought. Now, the thoughts exist before the word even comes out, right? And this is the picture, the idea you get here. Christ is the word of God. He is the expression of God's thought. The source and the origin is the Father. Christ is the expression of what the Father is like. You see? And the Father does not begin to be like that when that's expressed. In other words, I don't get the thought in my head when I speak. The thought precedes the speaking. Or that's what it should be anyway. I know sometimes we fail in that regard. I, I do too. But you know what I mean, right? Thoughts precede words. You know how sometimes you speak before thinking and then you wish you can take your words back? Yeah, well, we need to, uh, to do it the right way, the proper way. So, Christ is the expression of God. He's the one who is like God. He's the one who is the express image of his person. Now, it's interesting that in the Hebrew language, there is a word, there is a name that actually means the one who is like God. You know what that name is? It's Michael. Michael in Hebrew. And Michael or Michael actually means the one who is just like God. Who would that be a fitting name for? 
The only one who is like God is his son. And of course, when that son came to earth, the angel told his parents, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There are a number of other names as well. Emmanuel as well is another name for Christ. We're going to look at that briefly. But Christ's uh, name as Jesus is his human name. He was not known as Jesus before that time. He was the son of God. And the fit name for that, of course, he is Michael. In other words, Satan was not content in being Lucifer, the light bearer. He actually wanted to be Michael, the one who is like the most high. It's interesting. It all starts making more sense when you put the names there with the meaning, right? So names carry meaning and help us understand things. What is it that made Christ like his father? It was his sonship. And here it is from the Bible. So we can see the biblical reason for that. John 8, 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would have loved me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Very clearly here, he says, You would love me because I am his son. I didn't come of myself, he sent me. Here Christ is talking about the fact that he is God's only begotten son. And if you love the Father, you would love Christ because his sonship is what makes him everything like his Father. This was the point that he was saying here. In other verses, it refers to Christ as the only begotten Son. And this word has come under uh, attack and, and dispute quite a number of times, uh, the meaning of the word begotten. Uh, let's look at another video clip that deals with the issue of begotten, and then we'll make some comments about that. Here's our next clip. Now, some are going to parse and argue with the words. They say, well, Jesus was not made. He was begotten. And he came out of the Father. And they try to make a, an argument with semantics. But the fact is that if there was a time when Christ Jesus did not exist, and then through some act of the Father, he was brought forth, he was created. Now, that's all you can say. You can't you know, change the words and try to say, well, begotten is different than being created. If he's brought forth by the Father, if he goes from being non-being to being by an act of the Father, he's created. And so that would mean that he's a creature and he's not the creator. That's a very important point. You heard the argument before as well? All right. So the idea is that begotten, when applied to Christ, if in any way he was he had a beginning. That means he is created. Well, is that true? Of course not. Lucifer was created. Christ was begotten. Not once does the scripture refer to Christ as created. It always refers to him consistently as the only begotten son. If begotten means created, that would equate Christ with Lucifer. It means a very different thing. What does it mean? I don't have time here to go into it, but I have a study online. It's called Begotten But Forgotten. Some of you might have seen it, but if not, you'll look and find that we examine every occurrence of the word begotten, and you find that it always only means an only born child. To be born is to come out of your parent. The Bible says, and the verse we just read from Jesus, he was explaining the meaning of begotten. He says, I proceeded forth and came from God. That literally means I came out from the Father, or in other words, I was born or begotten. Because think about it, the human nature that the baby is born with, where does it come from? From the parents, right? So the divine or God nature that Christ possesses, where did it come from? From his Father. He was born of him. And the only place it exists is in the Father. And so Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He proceeded forth and came from God. He naturally inherited the divine nature. That's why he cannot be created. Lucifer, on the other hand, because he was created, did not possess that same nature. You see the difference? And so confusing the meaning of the words does not really prove the point it actually ends up destroying the meaning of what the Bible is trying to reveal. You see, a lot of people have a problem with Christ having a beginning. But the Apostle John did not have a problem with that, did he? Because he says, in the beginning was what? The Word. 
So did John believe there was a beginning for the word? Well, he wrote it right there. The only problem is today a lot of people don't like what is written. So we try and change the meaning of what's written to suit the ideas that we have adopted. Big problem. It leads to many disastrous outcomes. And we're already seeing a little bit as we go along. Finally, another component of Christ's inheritance is the fact that he did not just inherit the Father's nature, the Father's character. That automatically means that he also inherited the Father's name. We're talking about names today, right? And we see that in the scriptures a number of times. Notice how God put it to Moses. Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 21. It says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. Let's fill in the, the meaning here a little bit. When God says my name, what name is that? Jehovah, right? And it carries his characteristics, his nature. And so in Christ, the Father's name exists. He says my name as Jehovah is in the Son. So the Son has the Father's name as well. Whose name is it? It's the Father's name, but the Son has it because He is born of God. He is the only begotten of God. Well, it's no wonder then that your children happen to inherit not just your nature from you, but also your name, right? We already know that they have a particular family name that belongs to them. How did they get that? By being born into that family with that name. Here's where it started, right there. The great original is the father and his son. So, the name of God is in his son, the father's name. And the next verse confirms this. And notice the link together now as we put all these verses together. In uh, Exodus 23 verse 22 it says, But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto my, thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. So God was saying that you will obey his voice and do all that I speak. In other words, his voice, the voice of the son, is what the father speaks. Does that sound like John 1.1? 1, 1? The word of God. So the son carries the father's name, the father's nature, the father's character, and his words are what the father speaks. And this is actually what Jesus confirmed when he was here on earth time and again. Here it is, John 5, 43. He says, I am come in my father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. That what qualifies Christ and gives him the position and authority for who he is, is the fact that he came in his father's name. Coming in his father's name means he carries and rightfully has his father's name. As a matter of fact, his Hebrew name, which is Jesus, uh, in Hebrew it's pronounced Yeshua, actually means the salvation of Jehovah. Yah is the short for Jehovah, Yahweh, Yeshua, the salvation of Yah or the salvation of Jehovah. He came in his father's name. And this is how he manifested his father's name. He revealed the words of the father. He revealed the character of the father and what the father was really like. Here it is. He confirms that in, uh, oh, we're not up to that verse yet. Uh, the name, I want to mention this name here in, in this context. Because he, Jesus said the words that he spoke were not just his own words, but the words of who? The father which dwelt in him. And it's a significant name that uh, emphasizes this component as well is the name Emmanuel. You remember the angel said, you know, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Do you understand the meaning of that name now? It's talking about God the Father, right? God the Father is with us in the person of his son. That's what Emmanuel means. Because Christ is the express image of the Father. He has the Father's name. He came to reveal Him. This is the way that God is going to reconnect with man. And eternal life, brothers and sisters, is to know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. You see how the picture now becomes more complete. It's all about the Father and 
the Son. God wants us to know His name and God wants us to understand what that means. God wants to know us by name too. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, we know that the 144,000 have someone's name in their forehead, right? Whose name do they have in their forehead? They have the Father's name in their foreheads. What does that mean? They have some writing in there? No. In their mind, they have an understanding and a personal knowledge of God the Father. His name is right there. They know who He is. They know His character, His nature, and they have a personal connection with Him. The 144,000. That's what the overcomers will be. And talking about the overcomers in the book of Revelation, notice this verse in this context that might be a little interesting. Revelation 3 and verse 12, it says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. Excuse me. And I will write upon him my new name. How many names will the overcomer have, according to this verse? Okay, I'm hearing one and I'm hearing two. Any other guesses? Look, you don't need to guess. The answer is in the verse. How many names are written or given on the overcomer? Okay, let's look at it again. Uh, he shall go no more out. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Three, right? There's the Trinity, huh? That's what some people would say. But let's think about that for a minute. Because if there was a Trinity, it would be very clear right there. The name of God, we saw that name, right? Yahweh. The name of the city of my God, he says what it is there, right? It is the New Jerusalem. And the third name is Jesus' new name. Well, we don't know that yet. But there's one way to find out, right? It's to be an overcomer and be there. So these three names, the Father's name, the Son's new name, and the New Jerusalem. Why three names? It's not because there is a trinity. It's because eternal life is to know the Father and His Son. And that makes you an overcomer and a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Simple, right? You know, if there was a trinity and if there was anyone else to be named... That's the place where it would have been mentioned. Isn't that right? A lot of people talk about the Father and the Son and someone else, the Holy Spirit. Someone separate to the Father and the Son. We didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit, but we'll get to that in a minute. But can you see the point? It's important to see and understand what the Scripture means when it uses the words and the language and ex expresses the meaning that God intends for us to understand. The Spirit in the Bible and we looked at that briefly yesterday, is really the presence of the Father and the Son, not someone else. And that's why you find that the reference and the emphasis predominantly in the Scripture is about the Father and the Son, knowing them. It's not because God is trying to leave anyone out, but because His Spirit is part of Him. It's not anyone else. And to illustrate that, God created man in His own image. You have a spirit, right? Well, you better say yes. If you're, if you're alive here today, the answer is yes. Is your spirit a different person to you? You know, if you thought that, we might put you in an institution. You think something wrong with you. Like, for example, if, if you know, you greet me at the door, and I'm very happy to see a lot of you, and people are happy to see me, and, and you know, I say to you, look, you, you cheered my spirit today. Thank you. And if you thought I was talking about someone else, we would think there's something wrong with you. You cannot function properly in society if you think that way. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just saying it's not a normal way to think, right? Your spirit is a part of you. It's your character. It's your nature. It's something on the inside. We were made in God's image. God's image, uh, the original for us, God, and God's spirit is a part of him. It's his very own character. It's his very own mind and nature. It's not someone apart from him. But the strange thing is this. We think it's a little bit odd if you think that, you know, I said my spirit is someone else. And if you think that's someone different to me, 
You know, you think that's a little bit strange. But when it comes to God, it seems like it's accepted and normal to think that God's spirit is someone other than him. And nobody thinks that's strange or odd. And guess what? That's infinitely more important than what you think about people. You with me? It's because traditionally we have been told time and again, God's spirit is someone else. Separating the spirit of God from God and making it someone else and repeating it so often that it doesn't sound as strange as it should anymore. And this is why I'm illustrating it that way. Make sense? That's actually how we bear God's name is by receiving his spirit, not someone else's name, as we shall see. Now, this belief of separating the spirit from God uh, and making it into someone else has a number of uh, serious ramifications. Let me look at this clip and see what we can comment about that. Let's play that. Now, if the Holy Spirit was really just the spirit of Jesus, Jesus would say, I'm leaving, but I will through my spirit, do this. But it gives them separate individuality. Did you hear that? You know, I'll say, I'm leaving, I'll send you someone else, but the Bible gives it separate, in, or Jesus gives it separate individuality. In other words, the spirit is not really the spirit of Jesus, right? According to the clip. And this belief stems from the idea that God's spirit, or the spirit of Christ, cannot be part of him. It's someone else separating the spirit from the owner of the spirit. In other words, it's not really the spirit of Jesus, but notice how the Bible puts, let's get rid of this, and let's look at the next verse, how the Bible puts that, and we'll make a comment. Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So is it the spirit of Jesus? You better believe it if you want to believe the Bible. The spirit of the son is not a different person to the son. Just like your spirit is not a different person to you. God sends the very spirit of his son into our hearts, not someone else. Failure to realize this truth, brothers and sisters, that the spirit is the very life and presence of the son actually leads into all kinds of problems, as we shall see in a minute. But do you see the difference here? One side is influenced by the traditional view of God, that God is a trinity, which requires you to believe that God's spirit is a separate person to God, different to the Father and Son. It's not them, it's someone else that creates all kinds of problems. Whereas the Bible is very clear that the spirit of God is actually a part of him. Look, I want to give you this. this is, you can do this for homework. Find one example in the Bible only one, one will do, where someone's spirit was a different person to the owner of that spirit. Make sense? Easy homework, right? Just find one example where the spirit of someone was a different person to the owner of that spirit. Now, I have not found that, and I don't believe it exists. But if you find it, I'll be happy to hear from you. It's not there, brothers and sisters. It's not there because God created us in his image, in his likeness. So how dare you separate the spirit of God from God and make it someone else when you have no basis to do that in the Bible? Your only basis is tradition. And I'll show you the danger of that because the idea of the Trinity, brothers and sisters, teaches that there are three persons who make up God, right? God the Father, God the Son. God, the Holy Spirit. You heard about that idea? Okay, you know, you've heard about that. Okay, if you've been a Christian any length of time, of course, you would have. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. We have found that the Father revealed himself by name in the Bible. We have found that the Son revealed himself by name in the Bible. Jehovah and Yeshua. If you want to, uh, well, Jehovah is English. Yahweh or Jehovah. Yeshua or Jesus in uh in English, for the Father and for the Son. And we saw what the name means and signifies. It's the character, it's the nature, that there is identity. There is a real person who owns that name, who has a particular character and is interested in us having a relationship with him and with his son. So he revealed his name and his son's name. Clear in the Bible. So here's a question I want to ask you. What is the name of God the Holy Spirit? 
And don't tell me, oh, well, it's God, the Holy Spirit. That's not a name. That's a title. What is the name of God, the Holy Spirit? This is a good question to think about. And this is a good question to ask people who might, you know, have a problem with what you believe. Because people believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. We know the Father's name. We know the Son's name. What is the name of God, the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, some of you are saying Jesus. Biblically, that's, that's true. But if it's someone other than the Father and the Son, it has to have a, a name, its own name. There is no name in the Bible for God, the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because there is no other identity or person besides the Father and the Son. The Spirit belongs to the Father and the Son. You know what the name of the Spirit is, biblically? It's Emmanuel. It's Jesus. It's the Spirit of the Son. And it has the very character and nature of the Son. It's not someone else. And therefore, the name would be the name of the Son. So this is a good question to ponder. This is a good question to ask. Does that make sense? And so in the Trinity, you have a nameless God that is worshipped. God, the Holy Spirit. A God being that nobody knows his name. And he is worshipped equally with the Father and the Son. Lord have mercy. That is a tragedy. You are worshipping. If you worship like that, you are worshipping an anonymous, nameless God. That is very dangerous. Because the issue in the last days is over worship. Wow, fancy that. That's not a coincidence. That's why there's confusion over worship. That's why this issue exists. That's why there's so much turmoil in the church when somebody brings it up. Because guess what? Satan is not happy for his deception to be unmasked. So you start talking about the Son and, and, and try and say something different to the Trinity. Get out! I'm being serious, right? That's what happens. There is spiritual warfare going on, brothers and sisters. The deception in the last days is a deception over worship. So it's not surprising that there is such a reaction that's happening. Because the devil does not want his deceptions to be unmasked. He wants people to continue worshiping ignorantly. When you worship a nameless God, that's ignorant worship. There's no nice way to put it. You don't know who you worship. If there is no name, there is no identity, there is no character, there are no traits, you can't have a personal connection with that God if you don't even know his name. Right? And yet you believe he deserves equal standing with the Father and with the Son. Well, who is that? Well, we don't know. We just have a title, God the Holy Spirit. But eternal life is to know only two. And we know their names, right? Father and Son. Now, the danger and the tragedy in that, like I said, is illustrated in the following, in the following uh, clip. Let's hear this and see if you can pick up on what I mean. Um, you've got God the Father so loving the world that he sends God the, spot, the Son. And then we are saved and empowered through God the Spirit and guided through God the Spirit. God the Father loves the world. He sent God the Son. And we are saved and guided by who? God the Holy Spirit. You know who's the one who saves us and guides us? Do I really need to remind you? It's Jesus. So we take what belongs to Jesus and the credit that is due to Christ and it's given to someone else. That's an insult to Christ. You realize that? It's Christ is the one who saves us, who guides us. How dare you take what Christ accomplished and give that credit to someone else that you don't even know his name? You see what the Trinity has done? That's why we're talking about this topic. And some people think we're trying to agitate the issue and make something out of nothing. I hope you're seeing that there is something here, right? This is a serious issue, brothers and sisters. It's an insult to Christ to take what he has done and accomplished and credit that to someone else. But that's what the, the idea of the Trinity has done. And this is why I'm saying when you separate God from his spirit, you separate the spirit of God from God and make it into someone else. It leads you into all kinds of dangerous conclusions. Now, I'm not sharing this to condemn people and to say, look how bad they are, how wrong they are. We're right and they're wrong. That's not the idea. The idea is this, brothers and sisters. Deception and error is dangerous in the last days. And there are many victims who have fallen to that deception and that error. Our brothers and sisters who believe that might not know better. 
And this is why we're unmasking the deception, not to condemn them, but to outline the error. You see the issue? We're not trying to say, oh, they're really bad and these evil people. When I quote, you know, uh, Elder Doug Batchelor here, it's not to condemn him, but it's to demonstrate that we have a pervasive problem among us. We need to solve that problem and come back to the truth. That's the key. That's the point. You with me? That's the reason why God shares truth. It's not to condemn people, but that the people might not remain in darkness, but come to light, to a knowledge of the truth. And so this is why in the scripture, we don't have a name revealed for God, the Holy Spirit, because there is no name to reveal other than what has already been revealed. The Father and the Son. This is why in Acts 9.15, we're told, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, speaking to Ananias about Paul. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus said that when he came to earth, he came to declare his father's name, right? And his messengers, his apostle is to do what? Is to bear his name, to carry his name, is to preach the truth that is contained in that revealed name. To bear his name doesn't mean go teach people how to pronounce it in Hebrew. It means to preach Jesus and to carry his name, to receive his spirit, to have that name written in the forehead is how the 144,000 are described. They are bearing the name, they preach, they believe in Jesus. That's what declaring the name means. And notice how this is emphasized again, Acts 3 and verse 16. Peter is speaking, he says, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. In other words, bearing the name and knowing the name is to exercise faith in the owner of the name. That's what it means, right? So do you know him by name means, do you have that relationship, that trust, that connection, that faith in him, in the owner of that name? Eternal life is to have that connection, brothers and sisters, with the Father and with the Son. To know His name is to exercise faith in the owner of that name. And we only need to exercise faith in the Father and the Son. Some people say, well, you know, you're leaving out the Holy Spirit. Some people actually say, look, you know, these brethren, they're saying there's no Holy Spirit. You heard that? Well, I think if you heard what we're sharing tonight, or this morning, sorry, there is a Holy Spirit. There's a wrong understanding and there's a biblical understanding. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. We're not trying to leave the Spirit out. We're trying to place the Spirit in the exact same way that God has revealed it to be. It's His very own presence, not someone other than Him or His Son. In contrast to that, today the most common idea about God, and God is commonly worshipped as a trinity, a three-person God. Three in one. And here it is. I'll just have a few clips to close here. We're almost done. Uh, how this is actually described. Um, the word trinity is just a Latin word, tri-entity. It means three entities, like a tricycle has three wheels. It's talking about the three entities of God. The three entities of? Of God. This is the common idea of God that is worshipped today among us. This wasn't always the case. This is a, a change that has happened. We have a number of videos on that. I'm not going to get into it. But uh, this actually means that God is not just one, really. He's made up of more than one. He's made up of three. And here's, uh, here's another one to that effect as well. So... Is there one God or three? No, I believe that when the Bible says one God, it's talking about the three persons. So is it one God or three? When it talks about the one God, it actually means the three persons. That's not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about the one God, it's talking about one person. Who is it? God the Father. He has a son who is another person. But even the son we saw last night worshipped God, his father, and he called him my father and my God, because he was obedient to the commandments. And uh, here's another one. 
So we believe they are unique, individual persons. They are all, they have no beginning, no end. They're eternal. They're perfectly united while they do have different roles, uh, that they all compose God and they have personhood. And so um, they're self-existent. And we believe this is the one God that we love and worship. So this is the idea that is common today. Do you see a problem? We have a very big problem. And what, what Elder Doug is sharing here is not just his opinion. This is the position of most people today in the church, in Christendom. That the one God is actually composed of three divine persons who are all God beings, individuals in and of themselves. This, brothers and sisters, is not the Bible teaching about God. Plain and simple. We have to call it for what it is. This is not said to offend people. You, may, you know, if you're here today and you, you, you do not necessarily agree with what we're saying, we're not sharing this to try and offend you or, or make you upset. We're simply trying to find the Bible truth about the most important teaching of all. The one that Jesus said is eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. This is not about some loyalty to some any other cause. It's not about denominational loyalty. It's not about organizational loyalty. This is primarily about loyalty to the truth and what eternal life is about. If that is not your priority, if that is not your ultimate loyalty, you will be misled. There are so many people who don't believe the Bible truth because they have a superior loyalty to an organization, to a denomination, to a church, to a pastor, to a group, to a membership, whatever it might be. If your loyalty and your priority is not God's revealed truth, you will be misled. Didn't Jesus say, you have to love me more than father, mother, and brother and sister? Remember that? Your ultimate priority. And your loyalty is to the truth. And the truth is the person of the Son of God. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How much do you really care about your eternal life? Where do you place your priorities? That's the question. So I'll close with that. Uh, I'll close where we started. And where we started is the verse in Proverbs. I read it again. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Do you know him by name? I'm not asking, can you recite his name? Do you know him that you have a connection and a relationship with the father and with the son? You have this intimate bond. And this, brothers and sisters, is the foundation of what Jesus came to do and to accomplish to give us eternal life. You know, leave out all the distractions. It's between you and God. The church is not going to save you. Your pastor is not going to save you. And even the guest speaker from Australia is not going to save you. Right? It's between you and God. Do you know the Father and the Son? Do you have a personal relationship with them? That's what matters at the end of the day. Everything else is secondary. And if you put anything else in that place that is most important, you are on dangerous ground. I know that there are so many people who have misplaced loyalties. I know that it's difficult for people to accept something that is different to what the church is teaching them today. I know that. I'm well aware of that. But God's truth is truth. Whether many or few believe it. It doesn't change it. Amen? That's my challenge to you. Know God, not just know about God. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.